0: "'You do not know Sherlock Holmes yet,' he said. "'Perhaps you would not care for him as a constant companion. "'Why, what is there against him?' "'Oh, I didn't say there was anything against him. "'He is a little queer in his ideas, "'an enthusiast in some branches of science. "'As far as I know, he is a decent fellow enough.' "'I'm a consulting detective, if you can understand what that is.'
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to an episode of the I-Double-M-P podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. And the Yuletide is drawing near. There's a chill in the air, there are chestnuts roasting somewhere, and it's time for some special episodes of the I-Double-M-P.
2: Absolutely. Last time we delved into the, the terrors of the snowy winter and the horrors it may contain, and...
1: That was the beginning of this year, wasn't was, it? Oh, oh goodness, uh, let's not read too much into our. let's not read too much into that for a second but now we're doing special ones for uh before the the new year for for uh the holidays absolutely it's nice to be home for the holidays yes and as recommended by mrs darling wife this is a special series of episodes of homes for the holidays
2: absolutely
1: this is one of those things where i almost i hesitated to approach it because there's so much material in and around and about Sherlock Holmes absolutely
2: this is a dense a dense piece of media in general there are entire podcasts and things that dive into just this one topic because we're going to scratch the surface of our interactions of it but we can't we can't go too far in some ways
1: so we'll be dealing with various versions of Sherlock Holmes for this episode and and the next two episodes after this one and probably at least a couple of Patreon specials about other um, appearances of Sherlock Holmes or media inspired by or adapted from Sherlock Holmes.
2: Hey, Patreon supporters, do you want me to finally figure out why a theme song to a show I never watched has been stuck in my head for decades? We'll find out because I'll probably watch that as one of the bonuses. <laughs> I'm going to want
1: to find that out.
2: Oh, yeah. You're going to be intrigued by this one.
1: But we figured... If we're going to uh, to start talking about Sherlock Holmes, and I'm sure that even with what we're doing over the next month and a half, uh, this is not going to be uh, the last we ever talk about Sherlock Holmes. But if we're going to start, then uh, we need to start at the beginning. So we're once again going to be talking about a book. I think this is uh, the second time we've done this in our main podcast feed.
2: Absolutely. When we, when we say media, we're not just talking about the audio-visual, we're talking about any story conveyance method in that sense, we are tackling the written word, and it's a different kind of thing to do so on an audio format, but when we're talking about Sherlock Holmes, it's really the only way to start.
1: And starting with Sherlock Holmes, of course, means a study in Scarlet.
2: Oh, this one. I have never really thought of a book feeling like a pilot episode until now. <laughs>
1: I, I know what you mean, and on the one hand, it's um, it's easy to think that now because Sherlock Holmes as a character became such an institution, and this is where he was introduced, but I'm sure that Conan Doyle had in mind that uh, given the nature of, of publishing in the day, if he could come up with a character and, and provide stories about that character on a regular basis, uh, he'd have a hit, and he did. He did talk talk about a character a hit so big that when you try to end a series
2: the fans don't let you that that feels modern <laughs> in some ways to dive future into Sherlock Holmes's future there but i mean you don't see it when you're starting at the the first story the first story doesn't almost doesn't
1: feel like a Sherlock Holmes story at times it doesn't feel like what people have come to think of as the typical Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah. And that's partly because it didn't settle into the formula that the Holmes stories tended to later on. This is a, it's either a novella or a novel, depending on how you're counting, so it's long. And it is, um, and it's pretty wide ranging in terms of its subject matter and, and what it covers and where it goes. And of course, we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, but you're right. It's it's not what we think of as a Sherlock Holmes story in some ways, and yet it introduces all the components that we we see time in and time out. Absolutely. And one of the things I just love about the Sherlock Holmes novels in general,
2: and I'm I'm a big fan. I'm I'm a person who I wanted to pick up the complete collection, and I've read through most of them over the course of time. There's some that I skip around on, but. I've delved into this because I'm a fan of this series as well, and I almost feel like I came upon it separate. I don't feel like it was something I related to the fact that you were a fan of Sherlock Holmes. It was just like, I also came at it from a different angle, and we're both here.
1: Yeah, that's very true. I I took note of the fact that Sherlock Holmes had captured your imagination in some way, and that you got the two-volume complete stories and all that. and I didn't involve myself in that and insert myself into that. I wanted that to be your thing because you had discovered it. And um, it's nice. Na- we So we both knew at this point, at some point, we both understood. We both had a an interest in Sherlock Holmes and an appreciation for it. But we, it's not one of those things that we talked about in great depth, partly because I kind of wanted that to be your thing if, if it started that way. I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk with you about it now because
2: I've got some opinions on it, especially when you compare how Sherlock Holmes gets first presented in this book. Because the character he is originally is a very different person, I
1: think. A little bit. I don't think anything else that comes along later is necessarily inconsistent if you you allow for either intentionally given misapprehensions by Holmes or misunderstandings by Watson. I think it's all fairly consistent. Oh, really? Cuz yeah. I think Sherlock Holmes has a bit of the Superman problem. That that is true, he
2: does. He gets a lot more skillful at a lot more things over time. In a way that
1: is part of what I find interesting about the character in the first depiction. Yeah, and I think part of that is the kind of the the, the competence inflation you get for hero characters. Yeah. But also I think part of that is that formula that the stories do fall into at some point, which is it's a mystery specifically and precisely crafted to fit like a key into Sherlock Holmes's capabilities. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if everything is designed around his competencies, then he's going to seem super competent. It's like the way they used to design sets around... Uh, Douglas Fairbanks, so that he could leap onto a table absolutely effortlessly well yeah, if you absolutely if you measure the size of his leap and you build the table to suit, he's going to seem very athletic
2: <laughs> and part of what helps that happen, I think, is definitely the fact that all of the stories are from
1: the perspective of Watson, and that's something where you know, this is not the first story uh, that is told from the perspective of a secondary character who is our narrator. And yet it does that so well. And it allows that secondary character to be such a clear character while being our reporter, our our, uh, our narrator. Mm-hmm.
2: Being a reprint from the reminisces of John H Watson MD, late of the Army Medical Department. Is how it starts the book. And the entirety of the beginning is describing Watson's leading into being in the situation he is he is our focus character actually in some ways but he winds up in sherlock's orbit and then look is focusing on sherlock because he's a fascinating guy the entire time that also means that all the mannerisms and styling that you wind up infusing every later edition even the way they have sherlock holmes talk in later things is sometimes a little bit more the very formal way John Watson
0: will talk.
1: That is, that is true. We're, we're, we're getting the version of Holmes that is being reported by Watson. And that is so characteristic, partly because these were written in the 19th century London, in the part of the 19th century when these were written. It, it is such a, a writing-based culture in so many ways writing and it was so important how many newspapers and other publications were there in uh, in England at that time and it was uh in across uh, a broad spectrum of society it was about writing and reading and people communicated through um through telegrams if they had the money but mostly through post which is why you had mail delivery a couple of times a day at least and Because of that, there was a lot of storytelling that drew upon that, where if you want to tell a story, it's not just going to be a novelist narrating a story, although of course there were. How much better is it to take the writings that exist in the world about these events and make them your story? So make it the journal, make it an epistolatory novel where you're reading the letters that people are writing back and forth about the events. I think that um, that was widely used at the time. And here, by using that kind of technique and yet focusing it on one particular person's journal so that we can follow that person as a narrator and as a character, I think, is is one of the things that really drew me in.
2: Absolutely. And in some ways, it means that as much as – by making Sherlock Holmes this person who Watson relates to, Sherlock Holmes gets to be kind of a – frustrating awful person at times oh An yeah. aggravating guy in a way that a main character usually can't because you get to relate to watson and watson can be frustrated with him <laughs> and that is so much fun but it also leads to the fact that as our audience surrogate watson has to become less Understanding and quick to catch on, he gets slower to catch on as these go in some ways. Yeah, that is an unfortunate effect. And something I find annoying, Watson gets a lot more physically active in a way that feels counterproductive to the initial situation which put him into the into meeting Sherlock Holmes.
1: Are you talking about during the course of this book or the course of all of the Conan Doyle stories? Both. I think that by the end of this
2: book, John Watson is, I mean, part of it is that he is no longer focusing on the fact that he is a, he he is described by himself as this uh, born with pain and weak from prolonged hardships.
1: Yeah, but he also describes himself as just having nothing to do with himself. He gravitated towards London because that's like the sewer that everything in England that has nowhere else to go winds up. And he kind of p- descri- puts himself in that category. And this is giving him something to do. It's giving him a focus, even if it's to be an assistant to, or, or, or a friend to someone like Sherlock Holmes. He suddenly has something to focus on, not just in terms of being distracted, but in terms of a reason to use his capabilities.
2: Absolutely. But there's, I mean, later on stories will have John Watson keeping pace with foot chases and all sorts of things, which feel off to me at times, but that he has to be
1: there because he's our
2: camera, he's our narrator. And I kind of roll with that, but sometimes it
1: bugs me. Well, I have no problem with him successfully convalescing from his uh, his illness and war wounds. Okay. And and that brings us to some of the, the characteristics of, of Watson, even before we get into more of the characteristics of Holmes, and that is the reason they can set up Holmes the way they do, I think- one of the reasons why that is successful is how well and how quickly the character of John Watson is established and what kind of character John Watson is established as being because John Watson in the study in Scarlet is established as a pretty impressive person himself. Oh yeah. You could, you could, if you were reading this for the first time, when this is shows up at strand magazine and you start reading this story and it's about an army surgeon who went to the, Afghanistan and was part of this great battle and was injured and oh this is an adventure story about an army doctor this is going to be awesome and then it changes and you realize no things didn't work out quite the way he might have wanted them to and he winds up back in England and this is a a a crime story but the fact that Watson is so is educated has military training has has Combat experience—that gives us lots of reasons to trust all of his observations and his judgments about Holmes and other people. It wouldn't work if we didn't trust Watson to that extent.
2: To to use a uh, a writing term that I've heard you and other people mention before, uh, John Watson is the person who saves the cat for us. <laughs> Partially because they need to allow Sherlock Holmes to be the guy who might experiment on the cat.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I was thinking about that in that same way. And I'll link to Save the Cat. It's a famous um, book, mostly about screenwriting, but it's been adapted and expanded to, in, in its theory. The idea is, whoever your character is, you've got to give them a moment to save the cat so that you can see that they're a good person and worth following. I thought about Save the Cat in this re- most recent reading of a study in Scarlet too, But uh, I thought Watson was the cat. Oh, dang. Because as you were saying, Holmes really comes off as a potentially dangerous jerk. Yeah. And yet, he's friendly to and engaging with somebody we have already learned to trust. And takes up lodgings with him. And before too terribly long, begins to bring him into his confidence in this strange work that he does and gives him a reason to be active again i think watson's the cat and we can like Sherlock Holmes more than we otherwise would because he saves watson that is a really good point
2: i'd never <laughs> thought of it that way either oh goodness watson's the cat
1: <laughs> oh side note for editing i don't know that if i'm i don't know if i'm ever going to have a cat but if I ever do, I know what I have to name it now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Side note for editing. Watson's the cat shirt? Maybe. Oh, maybe. maybe. I like that. We you can come a- up with a design. Okay. Watson is the cat. We can also leave that in. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's...
2: Pardon me, I just got to absorb that for a second. <laughs> I mean, the entire first chapter of A Study in Scarlet is... Is this roaming around meeting an old friend who says, "I know a guy who's got a, who's looking for someone to split a room. He's looking for a roommate, but he's way too weird for anybody I know." And Watson's like, "I'll try it.
1: Yeah, but what have I got to lose? What have know? I got to lose?" And it works out, but definitely the guy is weird. And in some ways, uh, Watson is the perfect roommate for Holmes because his Watson's friend is probably right. There's, there are very few people who would put up with Holmes, mm-hmm. and yet Watson, you know, he's used to being around chemical laboratories. He's lived and worked in some horrible conditions. If he's an army surgeon, um, he, uh, uh, yeah, he's probably one of the few people who would adapt so quickly to sharing rooms with Sherlock Holmes. And the original description of Sherlock Holmes is,
2: is harsher than I expected. I mean, they're trying to establish him as this strange guy with specific fascinations. But they, they ha- he has a list in Chapter 2 of Sherlock Holmes' His Limits. <laughs> also, I love how it's formatted in the copy I've got. But his, it's the knowledge of literature, nil. Philosophy, nil. Astronomy, nil. Polit- politics, feeble. Botany, variable, well up in belladonna's opium and poisons generally, knows nothing of practical gardening. <laughs> Knowledge of geology, practical but limited. Tells at a glance different soils from one another after walks has shown me splashes upon his trousers and told me by their color and consistence what, in what part of London he had received them. Knowledge of chemistry, profound anatomy, accurate but unsystematic sensational literature immense he appears to know every detail of every horror perpetrated in the century plays the violin well an expert in single stick a boxer and a swordsman and good practical knowledge of british law i'm sorry sherlock holmes has a is a guy with a ipod just full of true crime
1: podcasts. (laughs) Now, Sherlock Holmes is the reason why there is such a thing as an iPod full of true crime podcasts. (laughs) Point made. But that's the thing. He's
2: supposed to be, according to this description, not well versed in the people goings on and such, in such a way. But I feel like he gets way better at the politics side and makes a whole lot more literature references over time.
1: Yeah, I also think that this is not necessarily accurate. This is Watson's judgment for uh, over a limited period of time. And I think that Holmes is definitely someone who knows so much that he feels no need to display knowledge that is not immediately practical. So, for example, I have a hard time believing when Watson says that Holmes has zero knowledge of astronomy because there's a conversation that they have that we can talk about where Holmes talks about all of his knowledge, all the room in his brain is focused on things that are going to be of practical use. Well, knowing what stars are where, when can definitely be of practical use for a consulting detective. Knowing something about the phases of the moon is going to be of practical use for a consulting detective. I just think there was never any occasion for any knowledge of astronomy on Holmes's part to come to form. Got a really good point there. I mean, Holmes wrote a monograph about beekeeping. <laughs> Why, of all the things, did he write a monograph about beekeeping? Because he found it interesting. And there's that conversation of that about the, the Copernican theory of the universe. And Holmes saying he never heard of it. though the. Earth goes around the sun. It makes no difference to me. I didn't know that. I could understand that it really, from the perspective of someone who's trying to solve crime in England, how the planets and and, and other celestial bodies move makes no difference, as long as he knows when the sun rises, when the sun sets, as far as we can determine from our point of view. Fine. And at the same time, I can't help but wonder, is he pulling Watson's leg?
2: Uh, good, good point. I mean, if there was a murder of an astronomer, suddenly he would know what the guy was looking at and what quadrant of the sky if he had to.
1: Yeah, you definitely get the impression that would occur in those later books. So I wonder sometimes, especially in these early stories, if, um, now I have no idea if this was in Conan Doyle's mind, but I do wonder if um, if Watson, if, if uh, Holmes is not toying with Watson a bit. Good point. In some ways, Watson needs to be
2: distracted from his own woe is me as you've described here being the cat and getting over his injuries more so which maybe are more mental than physical in some ways there but sherlock holmes is also a man easily bored if he doesn't have something to work on and so having a watson to constantly play off of actually fills both of them because Watson's trying to figure out Holmes, and Holmes has Watson to bat around with whether or not he knows things and with strange ideas and new experiments. And that means that they keep each other t- in line in that sense.
1: I think you're right about that, that um, Holmes was probably lonely. He's still human, and he is young and building this career and this job that he has invented for himself. And yet he really. He had no one to share it with and very few people who would put up with him long enough to be friendly. So I th- do think you're right that, that, uh, that Watson does a great deal for Holmes uh, in, in that way and is in some ways maybe a civilizing influence on Holmes, giving him someone to be accustomed to talking to people uh, um, outside of the realm of criminal detection. Watson teaches Holmes small talk is kind of a thing, I guess. <laughs> huh.
2: The study in Scarlet's case itself definitely is; it, it comes upon them quickly.
1: Yeah, we have a chapter or, or three of, of setup about the characters, and then suddenly there's a case in which um, Holmes I- invites Watson to join him in in uh, investigating the scene of this murder,
2: and Holmes definitely brings Watson along. As much so he has someone to explain all this to.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, Holmes might be getting uh, impatient with trying to explain things to the police investigators.
2: Lestrade is introduced in this story as well, and he's a constant presence in Sherlock Holmes stories.
1: And here we get two uh, uh, police inspectors who are kind of in competition with one another, and one of them is Lestrade. Gregson doesn't show up a lot more. Tobias
2: no. Gregson is not very
1: common. And it's interesting how they are described. They're, like, they're the best of a bad lot as far as Holmes is concerned. No detective in Scotland Yard is really worth much. Of that pool, these two guys are probably the best. Mm-hmm. And there's something almost like, look at me take them under my
2: wing, Watson. <laughs> as he tries to explain, like, nope, you almost had something there, but you're wrong on all of those points.
1: And that's where Lestrade comes out seeming a little bit sharper than Gregson, in that Lestrade is smart enough to know that there are times when he should just back up and let Holmes do his thing, because there'll be enough credit to go around once we've all solved the case. Whereas Gregson, it seems more set upon proving that he's as smart as Holmes, and that never works out well. Gregson's got a chip
2: on his shoulder in comparison there. <laughs> yeah. And that, I think, could have led to interesting interactions if we'd seen more Gregson. But Lestrade works as a better foil or counterpoint to make sure that Holmes gets involved in cases.
1: Right. And I guess then you wanted to streamline the, the cast of characters as they um, continue these stories. And to some extent, Lestrade changes to take on both of those roles. He gets Holmes involved. Sometimes he seems to be competing with Holmes. But uh, but then there's this murder, the first one that we we see them working on. And
2: they're both kind like Lestrade and Gregson are both like jockeying for first position in this and they both kind of pull Holmes in. <laughs> and Holmes comes in to find an empty house and a man dead in a room with a Roch, scribed in blood on the wall, blood on the floor, but no sign of a struggle,
1: and no um, there's blood, but no sign of a wound on the 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 corpse either. Yeah, so it's kind of it's set up in a very typical what we think of now at least as typical way. You've got a dead body found in weird circumstances. What happened? And yeah, that's pretty much uh, how this goes. And it it. It's a little bit of a procedural story in that we follow them finding out the identity of the person and following up on that and finding out who they had contact with. So we get kind of a, a procedural with the um, the consulting detective's involvement. And that's, a,
2: that's one of those phrases that they like to use a lot to establish him. But consulting detective. Yep. He... he He's pulled in on all sorts of cases to solve what the others can't solve.
1: Yeah. He's not a private detective who goes out and you know, finds evidence for people in civil matters. He's not a police detective. He's the detective that other detectives come to when they need help.
2: In some ways a lot of a lot of other stories later make him more of a private detective where people will bring their cases to him. Yeah. Instead of him being this second line of attack on problems no one can solve. But that's to keep him into the, into the, the scenario when it's still fresh and when things are new and there can be a little bit more action until it's going
1: on. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like if he's, he's sort of the appellate detective and whereas all the interesting things are happening on the trial level, you've got to get a courtroom. You've got to get to a trial if you're going to have a courtroom drama, not just an appeal. Mm -hmm. But this one
2: is interesting because it's, I mean, they, very, they do a very good job of establishing this room, and this description of Sherlock Holmes, like, combing through it, like, crouched over with his magnifying <laughs> glass, just, like, walking every little inch of it.
1: Now, and that might be the first use of a magnifying glass in detective fiction, if I recall correctly. Oh, wow. From some, something I read about it. But yeah, that's a great scene because it establishes these peculiar and yet, very well thought out approaches that Holmes has to a crime scene. Things that wouldn't seem that unusual today in the world of um, crime scene investigators processing scenes in a very meticulous way at the time, it seemed a little crazy and yet was very explicable. And what goes from like,
2: I think what, what did they assume it was? They assumed it was like strangulation or something or a heart or like a, a medical issue that killed this man originally, Sherlock Holmes just comes in it's like poison the guy was this big uh and that on the word is uh, that on the wall is in German and, and he
1: smelled the guy's lips he smelled the guy's lips he uh
2: like was checking for how dust was moved in the room, right and uh was even even before they get there, he's watching the road he is like. Getting a, a little upset with the fact that no one decided to preserve the walk up to the house.
1: And yet he can still manage to filter out in his mind what are the footsteps of the, the detectives and the police officers who came in later, and which are the ones that are partially obscured by the later footprints. So these must be the original footprints. But he, he immediately just walks through this and builds this entire picture
2: of this environment and who we're looking for. And then it's this hunt for the man. Um, and it moves rather swiftly once we get there because it's not a very long story.
1: No, it's not. It's, um, for, for the amount of detail that they pack in, it all moves very quickly. And it is very step by step. You know, who's the dead guy? Where was he staying? What can the people who run uh, the rooms where he was staying uh, tell us? Where, where did he come from? Where was he going? Who else did he have contact with? And that helps starts to put together a a picture and um uh and eventually they learn about the this guy's private secretary. who must know something, and they go looking for him and
2: We also get to meet the irregulars here earlier than I thought. I don't
1: think they get called that though I don't think so, but they are um uh Holmes' own um uh, uh, investigative team he
2: describes him as the baker street division of the detective police force <laughs>
1: <laughs> these little street urchins or street arabs in, in the uh um colloquial english of uh of the time
2: yeah we've got we've got a note for various parts of this that this book is written when it was written and yeah. there is definitely things here in terms of watson's mentality as our narrator and sir arthur cohen doyle's mentality as the writer that changed over time and weren't great and we've learned since then how to be better. Yep. If you can get past that for some of this, if it bothers you, it's understandable, but... Mm -hmm.
1: It's it's part and parcel of of so much 19th century literature. Yeah. There's no getting away from it, no... And there's a difference between accepting it as part of what it is versus condoning it or accepting it as being reasonable. But yeah, he's got this group of kids and he explains to Watson how nobody's going to notice these kids, they're invisible out on the street, so they can go places and hear things and and observe things that nobody else can manage to do. That is one positive for in the story and at the time this
2: dismissive attitude. We see Watson have a little bit of it when he first meets the kids. This dismissive attitude to these people. Sherlock Holmes just sees them as People with skills who can work with him. And looks past the, the social aspect straight into the, I'll pay you to do a job. Boom. And they're happy to do it. They're, they're so happy <laughs> that all of them arrive at once to report instead of one guy like Sherlock asked. They're all kind of too <laughs> energized to do this. And there's, there's something endearing about that. I, the irregulars are one of those parts that I wish more... Sherlock Holmes stories acknowledged and used because I think they're actually a fun aspect of it.
1: They are, and they, they that that brings up something about Holmes that, for all of the 19th century attitudes that are baked into these stories, Holmes as a character is someone who works very well and very happily with people from any level of society, any and in, in any branch of society. There's a lot said about the uh, American detective story, American 20th century detective story for, in particular, that one of the hallmarks of the P.I. characters, is this is a person who, can, who, who, because of what they do, they go between and among all of the different strata of society because of who they're working for and who they have to deal with. And that is true, but I think we see some of the beginnings of that with Sherlock Holmes and the kind of character he is. And he accepts everyone for who they are, and as you say, what their their particular skills are, what their particular knowledge are. Um, as long as they're English, if they're not English, things might be different. But again, 19th century. Mm. But we... We
2: see this you know, information gathering, and it ends on this twist that this other person is dead. There's two murders now.
1: Yeah, they think finding the... Uh, the the, the dead guy's private secretary is going to help until they find the private secretary's body.
2: And that's kind of when the story slows or evolves. Uh, I'm just going to not be around the bush. Sherlock Holmes tests the poison he might have found on the dead guy by killing a dog.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the opposite of saving the cat. <laughs> oh no. Sherlock Holmes kills the dog. Yeah, he does. Yeah, they, they do... Conan Doyle does establish this is a dog who is sick and who is in pain and the dog's owner asked Dr. Watson like the the evening before or that morning if he could help put this dog down humanely. So at least they established that he didn't just grab some random dog and say, who cares if we kill the dog? But yeah, it is kind of weird and abrupt that, oh, I think these pills that we found might be the poison. Let's test them out. <laughs> Bring me the convenient dog. <laughs> and, and they try
2: one pill and it does absolutely nothing. And that's like unexpected in some ways, having set up Sherlock Holmes and maybe knowing Sherlock Holmes in later stories, the small hiccup of not succeeding feels off.
1: I kind of like that. That's I, very, I really like it too. It shows that his process is a process, not a recipe. Oh, yeah, but the dog takes one pill
2: and nothing happens, and then the se- and then Sherlock, like, oh, wait, gives the dog the second pill, and it takes effect immediately. And with this
1: information in hand, they immediately find the suspect. Yeah, very quickly. Like, yeah. Uh, they find this cab driver who did it. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of part one of the story. Because... Yeah, that, that discovery and that revelation at the end of part one, it's kind of abrupt and it's not particularly well explained. No, in, in my copy, it's literally a page and a half.
2: <laughs> like, dog's gone, page and a half, two and a half, let I me mean, double check, two and a half pages. And suddenly, part one ends and we're into part two. We've got a
1: guy in handcuffs. Yeah. We've
2: got a guy in handcuffs. Yeah. And i I was like... What's going on? Was the first pill the dog took like a hallucinogen? Is this part two of the story just what the dog saw? I don't know what's going on anymore because the rest of this is not a Sherlock Holmes story. Or at least, what, three quarters of part two is not? It's explaining why the murder happened. We have
1: the who, what, where, and then it's this very long why. Right, suddenly we're we're no longer in England. Instead, we're on the Great Alkali Plain of North America. And um yeah, I mean think even allowing for what things were like in the 19th century, I think this makes it pretty clear that Conan Doyle had never visited North America or at least anywhere uh much farther than the East Coast. Yeah. I kind of love the description at the very beginning
0: of um of part 2 chapter 1. In the central portion of the great North American continent, there lies an arid and repulsive desert which for many a long year served as a barrier against the advance of civilization. From the Sierra Nevada to Nebraska, and from the Yellowstone River in the north to the Colorado upon the south, is a region of desolation and silence. I'm pretty sure we're within that right now yeah we can't let the baking soda
2: lakes uh, the the vinegar lakes ever touch the alkali plain, or else all of america <laughs> will just foam up i mean this is it's just so we go from such highly de, like detailed depictions of rooms and streets in london to this large general vagary of america
1: well he does acknowledge the variety
0: It comprises snow-capped and lofty mountains and dark and gloomy valleys. There are swift-flowing rivers which dash through jagged cannons. And there are enormous plains which in winter are white with snow and in summer are grey with a saline alkali dust. I feel like he's driving from, like, one of the ski towns through Boulder into Denver. They all preserve, however, the common characteristics of barrenness, inhospitality, and misery. Maybe he's not going through Boulder. I'm trying to figure out where he's going, but yeah, but, but seriously, what in the world?
1: But yeah, we're coming to you from the region of desolation and silence. Oh, yes.
2: Oh, we've got a new podcast intro, Dad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, um, but most of this part two story does not take place in, um, in this part of the, the great horrible Alkali Plain. Uh, the, um, in Colorado, most of it takes place a little bit farther west in Utah, yeah, because this takes place a lot around Salt Lake City. And uh, it involves a, 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 a man and a little girl who are the, uh, the only survivors of their pioneer traveling party, who are rescued by a, a group who are heading west, trying to find uh, a land to settle.
2: They're saved by a depiction of the Mormons.
1: Yeah, quite a depiction of, of the Mormons.
2: Yeah. Apparently, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle ha- is has apologized before his death to uh, leaders of the Mormon Church for the depiction in this story. Oh, is that right? Stating that he didn't know much about it and <laughs> was taking sensationalized stories that he'd heard and using those as a basis. But... Definitely, it's more just a backdrop to have a community that can be full of their own internal machinations to struggle against. It is more of a a society to apply to uh, this story than anything directly about them particular
1: in some ways. Yeah, you can tell. He wanted an exotic location. He wanted this sinister organization for the hero of part two, at least to get involved in and be, uh, uh, be be trying to get away from and or get revenge upon. And he hit upon whatever he had heard when he was writing this about the Mormons, about the Latter-day Saints. And yeah, they, they are depicted as rather a sinister organization in this story. Yeah. The story then uh, evolves around the fact that uh, the person that they rescued, uh, this man and this little girl, these people— they were quite successful, and they had to become part of this Mormon community in order to be rescued, in order to um, to thrive with them. But when the um, the head of this Mormon community is insisting that uh, the girl, now that she's grown up, has to be, become another wife of either his son or another one of their um, you know, next generation of elders, then... Uh, you know, the, the, the the man they rescued has raised this woman as uh, this girl as his daughter, uh, is not going to allow that. Nor will the the handsome stranger who has gotten to know them and who's fallen in love with her and vice versa and is going to marry her. And that, of course, means we've got these three people struggling to escape the clutches of this sinister organization and their strangely powerful secret police. Yeah, I mean it's just really yeah. wild and weird. And you could imagine that again. Nineteenth-century English writer could have set this in any number of places in the world. and kind of picked, okay, it's remote, it's not English, they have a weird religion. There's a lot of places that a, a lot of places on the globe where an English writer could have put their finger on the globe and come up with that as their idea. Yeah, this is this is it's really detached from anything going on. But all of that said. It makes for a good story. It does make to- for an interesting story, especially because our, our hero, our main character by
2: the end of this side story is our murderer in the later story, but he is not the man who we follow for most of it. He's the young boy who was engaged to this girl who is just out for revenge for this girl he loved and the girl's father. Who died trying to escape.
1: Yeah, he tries to, our, our young hero, tries to get the three of them out, The but they're caught by the, the bad guys. The man is killed. The woman is dragged back to Salt Lake City and forced to marry one of the guys she didn't want to marry, and she dies of heartbreak a few days later, it seems. So everything else is her true fiancé's struggle for revenge over the course of decades.
2: Yeah, and then it's like, I immediately set about about upon revenge, but having not succeeded, I realized a dead me can't do any of that, so I <laughs> took my time. Right. And it's like some very odd pacing. Usually I complain about pacing in our video things, but this is a really weird pacing in a book because this long section describing this and this weird stutter step at the end of... Now that I've got all this ramped up energy, I can't do anything about it until I'm within the clutches of Sherlock Holmes's brilliant mind so he can deduce that I did this.
1: So he follows the two guys who were responsible for these deaths all over the world. Like, he finally gets up enough money to go back to Salt Lake City and exact his revenge, and they're gone. And I think because they knew he was after them. Yeah, something like that. And they go to Europe. Europe. And he follows them all over Europe, but he doesn't have the money that they have because they took all the money that the girl's family had. And so he's like follows them to a city and then he has to get a job for a while before he can afford to follow them to the next city. And it's only in in London that they finally he's in the same city as they are at the same time. And he's able to confront one of them because they finally like aren't
2: side by side for once.
1: Yeah, they're kind of watching each other's back, and, and even, even him, and he's kind of a super competent hero also, at yeah. least the way he's described early on when he's young. Even he is not able to, to take them out when they're together all the time and watching each other's back, so it's, it takes a while for him to get them alone. But then when
2: he finally is able to confront them individually, he plays like forced Russian roulette with one, with one non-poisoned and one poisoned
1: pill. On each of them, it just
2: feels a very weird and convoluted way to murder.
1: Yeah, it really does. He's got like a matchbox with three pills, one of which is non-poisonous. Okay, you've you've thought about this a lot.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a very different story if that played out the other way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, it would have been some random cab driver is dead in a room. <laughs> um. Yeah, and. The fact that we get this story and we come to know him as a character through this, this long extended part two really changes the tone of the story in that one of the guiding or defining principles of mysteries is often taken to be that it is about finding who committed a crime in order to see justice restored. And we kind of see that here, but it has nothing to do with the fact that we found the person who committed these murders, because Conan Doyle is clearly bringing us to see these murders as at least in some sense justified. And they also sort of short circuit justice in that even if we can understand and and have compassion for this guy's motives, and yet he committed a murder and the law is the law. He's conveniently at death's door by the time he is committing the murders and then, within a few days later, caught. So he never has to be tried and convicted for these crimes anyway. In some ways, though, without the character of Jefferson
2: Hope in The Study in Scarlet, who proves the fact that Sherlock Holmes is here to enact the the law of the land in that sense. He's here to make sure that a murder he is brought in on is resolved. The answer of who committed it is done. But the nature of why the murder was done is separate from that. It's important to how it was done and oh, like, what steps were taken, but it's not the be-all, and all of the action. This character allows a Moriarty to show up later oh how so because if you are able to say that the deduction of how the murder was done and the reason for the murder can be separate things this means that a Moriarty character some of these other murderers who are doing so out of greed or malice or other things are doubly villainous they have not only committed this act against another person and therefore are in the sights and are stopped by Sherlock Holmes. But we uh, can separate the action and the motive and be also annoyed at them for the motive now as a separate thing. And that is a distinction that this allows him to write into the first story and then use later just to double down on some of these other later people being awful.
1: Oh, so, so Mariart, the crimes that Mariarty commits are made worse by the fact that he convinced them out of greed and self-importance.
2: Right. In a world that we've established can have a difference between the capture for having committed the act and the motive. You can can double down on those other people.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. And and it is interesting that that is what comes up in this very first story. Mm -hmm.
2: As much as I was saying that there's differences to the characters and things are not quite as locked in of this a little more action-y Sherlock Holmes you get in later stories. The world they set up is very, well, at least in London, the, ignoring how he depicts the rest <laughs> of the world, his London is very well-defined in that sense in terms of its its mentality and its its working mechanisms in that sense.
1: Yeah, it is a a very structured society, and Sherlock Holmes has to deal with those who have broken parts of that structure and to do that he has to cut across so many different parts of that structure
2: well we might be coming up to the end because now we've we've reached the end of the story itself but yeah there's so much
1: to talk about here Yeah, i mean where do you it, 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 it was easy to tell where to start talking about sherlock holmes you start with the study in scarlet uh but where do you end you could just keep going forever as so many have, and and that's, uh, that's, that's wonderful.
2: I mean, in many ways, the study in Scarlet, for its strange depictions and its meandering uh, side story, which doesn't have Sherlock Holmes in it at all, isn't a really well adapted. I mean, there's plenty of adaptations, but half of the listings I'm finding are they took the murder, but they removed the the motives portion and swapped it out.
1: Which changes it
2: so much. Changes it so much. Or they took the character names. Like, this one gets ripped apart and restructured a lot. Or it gets referenced in parody naming, but it's not the one being converted. In some ways, this is the... This intro is skipped over for the more established Sherlock Holmes later.
1: And the parts of this that are taken out are the introduction of... Holmes to Watson and the initial descriptions of Holmes and things like that but yeah the story itself not almost never adapted as is and on rare occasions adapted by pulling pieces out of it Mm -hmm. but um but yeah I guess maybe we can address that ourselves with our usual questions it's a book read or no read do you recommend that people read this I think so Not only because I think that reading a Sherlock Holmes story is
2: a fun thing. If you're looking for a mystery, especially if you're looking for a bite-sized, a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories are short stories, comparatively. So they're not a, a big slog to read through. This one's one of the longer ones in some portions. It's not very long, but it's not one of the really short stories. But I think seeing how this one's different and knowing how it all started out is really great for being able to... Get a sense of how the rest of the, the books evolved from there.
1: And just any time you can read Sherlock Holmes is great. So I'd say read it. Yeah, I would agree. And this story in particular, if you've read some 19th century literature, you might have certain expectations. I would say that this story is just very compellingly written. It's got a very clean style, a very clear style. It's very mannered in the, um, in the, uh, the way that uh, the novels of its time are put together. But it's well paced. It draws you in with these initial descriptions of the beginning of of John Watson's career. And and it's interesting that we have these different authorial voices. We have this overarching editorial voice or authorial voice who's introducing us to the fact that what we're about to read are excerpts from the, the journal of Dr. John Watson. And then in part two, we have this long story. Set in the American West, told not by John Watson, but by this overarching editorial voice. And the fact that it goes back and forth, not chapter by chapter the way some novels would, but in these two different parts with these two different but equally compelling styles, that helps keep it engaged, that helps it remain engaging throughout the length of this story. So I would say, by all means, read. Uh, a study in Scarlet, and it may very well get you reading all the Sherlock Holmes you can get if it uh, if it's your kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that brings up our our other question, which um, what I, you came up with a good uh, pattern for this uh, when we did a book last time. I think it was add adapt or adios or something like that. Yeah,
2: I had some fun with it there.
1: So I don't know. Do you think there should be any more stories uh, featuring this character? In terms of Sherlock Holmes, (laughs) always.
2: I think there always should be Sherlock Holmes stories because he's an interesting character, and as we'll see in these other things, he is more than just a singular character. He is definitely one of those ideas-given form that can be applied to different stories. So I'm always excited that there's perpetually more Sherlock Holmes, especially that he's public domain. I, I think I can speak for us that here at the IMMP, we are champions of public domain content, and <laughs> I like seeing that being done. So I'm, I'm excited for that. I, I always want to see more Sherlock Holmes. Even even a bit of bad Sherlock Holmes out there is a sign people are thinking about it, and that is a good sign.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a part of our culture. I don't think it's ever going to go away, and it shouldn't. Um. Adding and adapting, they're all part and parcel of the same thing at this point. Of course, Conan Doyle went on to write lots and lots of other Sherlock Holmes stories. By all means, read them. And of course, there are tons and tons of different adaptations or variations on Sherlock Holmes. They're not all good, but I can understand the reason for them. And some of them are terrific. And you know, this isn't the first Sherlock Holmes story we've talked about on the podcast, really, when you get down to it. We did
2: to watch Young Sherlock
1: Holmes. Young Sherlock Holmes, that's right. That's one of those, let's take a side story and take a, do a what if. And purists about Sherlock Holmes probably don't like that very much. I've heard from some who do not like uh, Young Sherlock Holmes. But I say there's room for plenty of, uh, of spin-offs and side stories and new approaches. So uh, I, I like Young Sherlock Holmes a lot. Of course, I like the original material like uh, A Study in Scarlet. And I like a lot of the adaptations, and we'll be talking about adaptations in the next uh, few podcasts.
2: And if you want to talk about spinoffs and such, I've got an idea I want to just throw out there to anyone who wants to try writing this. I might try doing something with it at some point if I ever get the chance. But I mentioned the fact that we don't hear a lot from Tobias Gregson, the other Scotland Yard detective. Out of the four novels and 56 short stories, Tobias Gregson only shows up in four of them. Hmm. I want someone to take this character and run with it. Give me the Tobias Gregson who's taken off of the force where he is and sent to some other posting somewhere. The case files of Tobias Gregson. Absolutely. Give us a guy who wants to prove he's smarter and Sherlock Holmes, doesn't have the science background. But has enough of a chip on his shoulder just to brute force his way into finding detection methods the same way Sherlock does. Sherlock will carefully study bullet holes. Tobias Gregson will fire a gun in agitation and then notice. Wait a minute, those two look different. <laughs> like, give us something like this. We've got a character with a pre-established connection and 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 uh, personality, but we don't hear
1: from him after a little while. <laughs>
2: know what he was doing someone pick up this and run with it
1: i like that idea i like that idea and there are, are probably more characters in sherlock holmes you could do that with Absolutely. and some some have of course but yeah um yeah, this is not not the end for sherlock holmes and it's not the end for us talking about sherlock holmes but uh, i think now for now it is the end of this episode of the i double mp uh, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh with more tales of media from other times and places and more tales uh, of um, media about Sherlock Holmes, but in the meantime, Ian, where can people find you?
2: I can be found staying warm underneath my dear stalker cap at uh, uh on Twitter as item crafting on YouTube as item crafting and on Twitch as item crafting
1: live and you can find me online at by, uh, by on Twitter as by Matthew Porter, as Twitch uh, on Twitch as by Matthew Porter. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com. And that's where you will find links to all of our back episodes, link to our, to our Patreon, a uh, link to our shop where you can buy t shirts and coffee mugs and other fun things. Uh, and a link, I don't know if I mentioned our Discord, link to our Discord. And uh you'll also be able to find the podcast on Twitter at IMMPcast. So, uh thank you very much for downloading, thank you very much for listening, and we will be back soon. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.